Thank you for tuning into the Short Stacks. I'm Lisa Quintero, young adult librarian. And I'm Nick Barron, patron and sometimes volunteer. This is a show where we talk to you about what we've been reading, listening to, or watching. And this week we're going to be talking a bit about some books we've been reading about hip-hop and music in general. But first, some... Library news! There's not much to report this week. We are still signing people up for summer reading, so if you have a child between a infant and or an 18-year-old, anywhere in that range, you can sign them up for the summer reading program. Um, and other than that, the podcast is going to be switching to a bi-weekly format starting this month. So... We will be on this week, but we won't be on next week, and, you know, it'll go back and forth like that in order to make time to do other things at the library as well. From the stacks. So what did you read this week, Nick? Uh, this week I read Inside the Terror Dome by uh, Tim Gerson. It is the uh, biography about Public Enemy. Okay. And uh, I've got mixed feelings about the book. Okay. Uh, it's very interesting. I'm a fan of Public Enemy. I, I'm, I'm, I would say I'm a big fan of Public Enemy. Mm-hmm. But uh, there are... A number of different biographies about the band, autobiographies and biographies. Mm-hmm. And this particular one, it was I was grabbing the Beastie Boys book off the shelf and saw it on the shelf at the Shorewood Library, and I was like, "Ooh, a book about Public Enemy! I'm uh-huh. gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna grab this." And when I originally started reading it, Tim Grierson uh, pointed out right away that one, he's a white author, and two, that he didn't actually interview any of the members of the band. The book is taken from a compilation of or a variety of sources, mostly interviews with the band from uh, you know, Ro- yeah, yeah, Rolling yeah. Stone and, and, and places like that, um, along with reading all of their biographies. Okay. Uh, so what this book tries to do, and it's it's very entertaining in, in what it does, mm-hmm. uh, it starts off with a chapter on the formation of the band and mm-hmm. how the band came to be, which is a really interesting story. And then each chapter after that is one of their releases and it breaks down the process, what they were going through at the time that, you know, formed, mm-hmm. um, you know, how they, they approach things and the, and the dynamics in the band. And yeah, I, I as a as a music fan, I love the minutia mm-hmm. of how a great record came to be. Mm-hmm. And so from that standpoint, I find the, the book really fascinating. But at the same time, one of the things that I loved about the Beastie Boys book was the fact that because it was written by them now, mm-hmm. um, or the surviving members now, is it gave them the opportunity for reflection and mm-hmm. to call themselves out and be like, hey, you know, we did X, Y, and Z, and that was crappy, and we apologize for that. Mm-hmm. And because this is taken from interviews at the time, it only gives things the context of the time. Yeah. So, but yeah, one of the things, one of the great joys of reading this book is, and you you may remember this from when when you were sitting sitting with me, I was reading the chapter on It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back. And there was a reference to something when they were recording Black Steel in the Hour of Chaos, which is one of my favorite songs. And it was, I was so taken by, you know, what was, what was being said that I had to rush into the apartment Mm -hmm. uh, because I was sitting outside and rush in and listen to the song immediately uh, to uh, be like, oh, you know, that detail, I never picked up on that. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's so cool. So yeah, it's from that standpoint, if you, if you like the minutia of music, Mm -hmm. it's a really interesting book. Yeah, you said this one was broken down to where like each chapter kind of covers an album. Yeah, do correct. You, like about how many albums have they put out? Do you know? <laughs> um, well, 
let's see. One of the chapters definitely covers two. Okay. Because uh, they put out two records that year. Uh-huh. Um, but, uh, yeah, they've put out, like, 12 or 13 records. Oh, okay, well. Yeah, so, so I mean, it's, it's a 300 and, yeah, it's a... 328 page book before the discography and then the discography they cover one two three four five six seven eight nine ten eleven twelve thirteen fourteen fifteen sixteen records okay wow that's a lot of records yeah they're prolific yeah when did they first become a band um they started in what 80 yo bumrush the show came out in 1987 okay so, so yeah, like as far as you know, they were a little bit later than like the first wave of of hip hop, mm-hmm. but uh, at the same time, they had they came into it and had a huge impact right off the bat. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it's a fascinating book. Uh, yeah, I I think the 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 chapter on because uh, the record that spoke the most to me, mm-hmm. uh, it takes a nation of millions to hold us back. That chapter was extremely interesting and you know i followed them through fear of a black planet and apocalypse 91 okay and uh yeah like it gets into you know you know how the the band dynamics were working and i'm gonna i'm gonna tell one more favorite story from this and then we'll move on to breaking down some of the some of the records and stuff but my favorite thing that i had no idea because like the members of public enemy you know they have cool names like terminator x and Mm -hmm. flava flave and what have you and Mm -hmm. the when Chuck D went into um, forming the band, and he originally didn't even want to form the band. Mm-hmm. Somebody heard his voice because he uh, did DJing and and was on radio and, and okay. various other things. And he um, put vocals on one song, and it was something that he thought he was going to do once. And there were people that were like, "You need to front a band," and he's mm-hmm. like, "No, no, 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 no." And people like Rick Rubin from Def Jam Records mm-hmm. were like, "No, you." You know, he basically called him every day until he managed to convince Chuck D to start a band. And so when he started the band, because he loves rock and roll and he loves punk, he like, and he loves sci-fi, uh, he uh, decided that he wanted a crew like the the Star Trek Enterprise. Okay. <laughs> um, and so each of the people had an in, in-band backstory that uh, would be delivered into the lyrics. Okay. Um, so... It's it's interesting because they you know their their lyrics have like a, a very deep political consciousness, uh-huh. but at the same ta- same time they do little flourishes to make each of the characters stand out as they deliver the political conscious mm-hmm. aspect. Okay, yeah, that makes sense because like when I think about bands, you know, like like Alice Cooper, and I think about you know punk bands like uh, the Dead Kennedys. You know, each member of the band kind of has their own little personality and. and... They might not actually be like that in real life, but, you know, like, yeah. Alice Cooper seems like a very intelligent person in real life, but, you know, on the stage, he's, like, sticking his tongue out and, you know, doing crazy things. <laughs> <laughs> and same with Jello Biafra, he also... Uh, Jello Biafra's just like that. That's... <laughs> that's just who he is. Yes. But, yeah. Um, yeah, no, that's that's interesting, you know. It's interesting where influences come from a variety of types of music, and I'll be talking about that a little bit more uh, when I talk about my books, but, yeah... Uh, I, you know, I wouldn't have thought that Public Enemy was influenced by punk and rock, but that's, yep. that's cool. Mm. Uh, yeah. And one of the, one of the things that like rock was a, was a huge influence. One of the things that they talk about with It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back is that 
he uh, wanted to, he loved the fact that rock records were often concept records. Mm. And so he had this idea, there's, there's uh, clips throughout um, the record of a live performance that they did in London. And it was because he wanted it structured and to feel like a live record, even mm-hmm. though it was all studio cuts. Mm-hmm. Um, but they would put these like perfectly timed snippets. And one of the other things, uh, the record at the time, it is so densely layered with, mm-hmm. with samples mm-hmm. um, and clips. They estimated that that record had between 100 and 150 samples oh, wow. on it. And uh, uh, Fear of a Black Planet, Planet has 150 to 200 samples. Okay. Um, as they went on after that, because it was so dense, mm-hmm. um, they started to move away from that. Um, in fact, when they went into recording Fear of a Black Planet, Chuck D had a hundred hours worth of tapes of samples that he had pulled from all different places in order to pull those ideas into songs. And okay. after going to that level of depth, he was like, we're going to, we're going to pull back on that a little. Mm-hmm. Cool. So um, if people wanted to listen to, you know, some of these public enemy records, how could they find them? Okay. So uh, I looked really quick to see what was on Hoopla mm-hmm. and what was in uh, County Cat. And, uh, with Public Enemy, I don't remember which was in County Cat. Uh, okay. I'll be honest. Uh, but on Hoopla, you can get almost every one of the like 16 records that are listed in oh, the cool. book. Um, and they definitely have uh, multiple listings for It Takes a Nation of Million to Hold Us Back, t- Nation of Millions, uh, Fear of a Black Planet, and Apocalypse 91. All three of those records are top-notch. Uh-huh. Um, highly recommended. Yeah, and I know that, you know, now that we're, we're more suburban libraries are open, I know that we can request things from other libraries as well. So if there is a public enemy record that you would rather have a physical copy of, we can always request it for you from the library because I'm sure there are several copies of different public enemy records within the system. So. Yep. And the, one of the uh, other things that I was going to mention, if you're going to do the deep dive into public enemy, there's one person who also has a uh, baritone voice and a, and a heavy uh, uh, political consciousness similar to Chuck D. And so from that same era, there's a, a rapper but goes by the name of Paris. Okay. And uh, he actually, uh, one of the Public Enemy records is a collaboration with him. Okay. Um, but I highly recommend the record Sleeping with the Enemy. That was, that was in County Cat. County Cat. Okay, cool. So what did you read? So I read a few graphic novels. The first one that I read is the beginning of a series. It's called Hip Hop Family Tree. And it covers uh, by Ed Pyscor, uh, who's a well-known graphic novel writer and artist. He uh, covers the years 1970 or the 1970s to the 1981 in this. And so it's basically about the birth of hip hop. And it's, it's a whole series. There's, there's currently four books that the library has, uh, Sherwood has, and they go, one of them is the, the 1970s to 1981. And then we have 1981 to 1983, 1983 to 1984, and 1984 to 1985. So we wouldn't have even gotten to Public Enemy yet. So I wouldn't have even gotten to Public Enemy yet. No, so the first one covers the birth of hip hop. And so... For those who don't know, hip-hop basically was born out of parties in New York City. And so there were DJs at these parties who would take different records and um, mix them together. And, you know, people would come to these parties and hang out. And so among these people were uh, Grandmaster Flash and DJ Cool Herc and Africa Bambada. And they, you know, a couple of them figured new ways of mixing records together and, and of sampling things. And they kind of... At the time in New York City, there was the gang culture was pretty intense, and so uh, some of them, like Africa Bombada, wanted to kind of change that dynamic and wanted to stop the violence. And so 
they tried to get their community together and involved through the hip-hop movement. And the hip-hop movement included graffiti art, it included uh, emceeing, it included DJing, it included breakdancing, it included a whole variety of um, arts. Graffiti, breakdancing, there's four pillars of hip-hop. Yeah, uh, breakdance, emcees, DJs, and graffiti artists yeah. are the four pillars of yeah. hip-hop. Um, and so Africa Bambada, you know, tried to to guide people into doing these things rather than and, you know, fighting each other. And so this whole concept of, of rap battles became a thing where, you know, MCs would battle each other. And that was, you know, kind of born out of gang culture. Because it's like instead of, you know, fighting each other with, with knives and, and whatnot, you know, they were they were battling each other with their words. And, it you know, it was interesting because different neighborhoods like the Bronx and, and whatnot had their own groups. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, groups from other neighborhoods would come and battle those groups. Uh, the, the graphic novel also covers a blackout that happened in New York City around yep. that time. And a lot of that's how a lot of hip hop artists were able to do their thing. A lot of DJs were able to do their thing because a lot of them participated in the looting of uh, electronic stores. And because a lot of DJ equipment, you know, cost thousands of dollars. I mean, at the time it was 1970s, so it'd be, you know, hundreds of dollars, but still very expensive. Um, and if you're just some kid on the street who doesn't have any money and is just trying to do this thing for fun, like, you know, you don't you don't necessarily have hundreds of dollars sitting around. So that's how a lot of them got their equipment. And, um, you know, from there, from the DJs, a lot of the DJs brought in people to, to be their MCs to kind of hype up the crowd. And then the MCs, a lot of them started doing, you know, poetry, like, which, you know, is rap. And so among the the first few groups that, that were around, uh, they mention uh, the Treacherous Three, the Cold Crush Brothers, the Funky Four Plus One, which included the first female MC and the Fantastic Five. So it covers all of the, the initial groups, and then it kind of covers, you know, how how things started to evolve um, with Russell Simmons, you know, becoming involved and uh, starting Run DMC with his brother and um, some other people that he knew. And so, yeah, it's really interesting, and I'm looking forward to reading the rest of the series and kind of seeing, you know, how things evolved. It's interesting because a lot of them, you know, talk about, it talks about how, you know, they wanted to put out their own records and so they started putting out their own records but other you know there were people who were record label producers who were like you know you can't do this because you're taking other people's music and you know with copyright and everything and then and so they started putting out some of their own stuff because they you know big record companies didn't want to put it out because of royalties and things like that and and you know what they were doing was creating this whole new art form out of other people's music and sampling other people's music and so you know, that that was part of the challenge of, of hip hop becoming big yeah. um, was all the all the sampling that was done. Um, but at the same time, you know, all the sampling that was done has exposed so many people to so many different musicians. And that that segues into my other book that I read, <laughs> which is another graphic novel. And it is called Monk. It's about Thelonious Monk. It's by Yusef Dawoodi. And it's about uh, the friendship between Thelonious Monk and Kathleen Annie Pananica de Konigswarder, who is somebody who was a patron of a lot of jazz musicians in New York City during the jazz era. And so she was a aristocrat from Europe. She um, got really into jazz in the, you know, the 20s and 30s, and she ended up coming over to the States and helping a lot of jazz artists by getting them gigs and, and getting, you know, helping them out financially and, and doing all these things for them because she just loved jazz music and wanted it made her feel free and, and you know and since everybody who made jazz was you know black and, and had all these things going against them she was like I want them to be as free as they can to make this music that makes me feel free 
And so this is a really interesting book. And Thelonious Monk's actually, like, he was known as the king of bebop. He pioneered this sound of a lot of discordant notes. And when he first started playing music, a lot of people were like, this is garbage. You know, he, he sounds like a five-year-old playing the piano. Like, he does he know what he's doing? Why is he on stage? And for him, bebop was, you know, he, he felt the music in him. And he, he would try to do percussion with one hand on the piano while at the same time doing melodies with the other hand. But mm. he played with very stiff fingers, so it had a very different sound than most normal pianists. And, um, you know, he was able to prove to people early on that he, that he could play the piano because he had toured with gospel groups and things like that, you know. So he knew how to play the piano, but, you know, in his head, he heard his own music. And, and the book talks about he listened to a lot of the discordant sounds of the city of New York. And, and to him, that was music, you know. And so he, even though he received a lot of criticism, he didn't let that stop him. And he just kept doing what he wanted to do. And eventually he got to be very well respected and, and ended up, you know, doing things with like Duke Ellington and other musicians, including Miles Davis, um, though they, I guess, had a kind of a bit of a feud because uh, different visions in terms of what, you know, the type of jazz that they wanted to create. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, he, because of his way of doing music, he's been sampled in a bunch of different stuff as well. Uh, mm-hmm. The Wu-Tang Clan has sampled his work. Um, Shaka Khan has sampled his work. Quasimodo, several different artists have sampled his work, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, it's it's interesting how how different musicians from different genres influence each other and their avant-gardeness kind of inspires other musicians to be like hey we're gonna do this thing or you know um we're gonna try to branch out and do this thing that everybody thinks is garbage but we think it's great Mm -hmm. and and eventually you find your audience that thinks like oh this is great and so panonica was the woman uh she was a big fan of, of bebop she went to a concert of his and her friend was like, I'm sorry for bringing you to this. This is terrible. And she was like, no, this is amazing. This this is not what I was expecting at all. And this man clearly feels free to create his own music. And she actually saw him when he was in Paris. And it's funny because I guess the show that she saw him at was a show that he didn't feel he did very well at because mm-hmm. he was playing with these musicians that was not his band. Mm-hmm. Um, he had been arrested in the United States prior to going to Paris. And so when he got arrested uh, for possession of marijuana, he ended up in jail and the cops ended up taking away his cabaret card which was what allowed him to play at different venues and Mm -hmm. so since he wasn't allowed to play venues in the u.s um or in new york city he ended up you know going to to europe to try and play to you know get his name out there a bit more and the people that he played with there didn't really get what he was doing and they thought he was nuts and so the show that she went to you know he felt was garbage because he did his thing, but the people that he was playing with didn't get what he was trying to do and were yeah. off tempo and were not, you know, doing what he, he needed them to do. But she still thought he was great and she had listened to his records before going to the show. Mm-hmm. And so she knew what he was capable of. And so, you know, she decided to, to help him out because she knew that she, she knew his story and knew what had happened to him in New York. And so she was like, I'll help you get shows and, and get your name out there back in New York and yeah, it's interesting, the friendship that she had with him. I guess he was her favorite, um, according to the author of all the, the musicians that she helped, because she helped a lot of people, including um, Charlie Parker. He actually ended up dying in her, her flat, because I guess he had pneumonia, and a lot of people wouldn't take him in because he was uh, an alcoholic at the time mm. and had kind of, you know, cut ties with a lot of different people in his life. And so she she took him in, and um, he ended up hanging out at her house or her, her flat for a bit. and. He died there uh, of pneumonia and she called the the doctor and, you know, they came and took him away and a lot of people 
blamed her for his death, but a lot of other people in the community knew that she was the only person who was willing to take him in in yeah. the state that he was in and that she was just trying to, to help. But yeah, she, I guess, faced a lot of scrutiny because she was this white woman who was married to a diplomat who lived in Europe, but she you know, spent a lot of time in the U.S. and she would like buy cars for the people that she was helping out and she would help them out in big ways because she had a lot of money. She was very mm. wealthy. She was part of the Rothschild family in Europe and they owned banks. And so she, you know, some people thought that there was inappropriate things going on between her and the musicians that she was friends with. But from accounts and things, it sounds like she was just a very generous person. And, you know, she might have had some, some mental health issues. And it sounds like Thelonious also had some mental health issues because he often would like hallucinate things. And that was part of what helped him create his music is, you know, he saw things and heard things that weren't mm -hmm. there. And that in turn influenced his music. So I think, you know, they kind of saw a, a kindred spirit in mm -hmm. each other. So yeah, that was really interesting. And I'm excited to read the, the next three volumes of Hip Hop Family Tree. And then I'm excited for Ed Piscor to put out some more to see what happens as the 80s progress, you know, see if we make it to Public Enemy and yeah. and all the other artists that, you know, I remember hearing as a young person. But yeah, I've, I've been listening to a lot of hip hop lately, so felt kind of inspired to look into the history of it because I didn't know a lot about the history of it. I didn't really get into hip hop for real until like the early 2000s and it was mostly stuff from that era like mm. Common and, and you know Kanye West and yep. things like that and so KRS-One and yes. yeah. You know one of the things that when you were talking about Thelonious Monk and like bebop being kind of a, a deconstruction of jazz and being very dissonant one of the things that uh, that is really important to recognize is that a lot of times when music moves forward, when it progresses, it's usually when somebody comes along and breaks breaks it down and turns it into something new. Mm -hmm. Hip-hop, uh, when it first came along, it was thought of as a fad. Uh, no one in the music industry took it seriously. Mm -hmm. That's why a lot of the early, uh, the like Beastie Boys and Run DMC and uh, LL Cool J, they were all on Def Jam because mm -hmm. it was this small label started by Rick Rubin and Russell Simmons. Mm -hmm. Um, because nobody, none of the bigwigs were willing to to, to take a um, chance. Yeah, take a chance. And when Public Enemy uh, made "It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back," Hank Shockley he wanted to deconstruct music as well. And so when they went into the studio, there's like air raid sirens and whistles and and all of these sounds that you would not associate with music. Mm -hmm. Um, that you wouldn't associate with music, and it was done deliberately. Like Hank, uh, was very very adamant you know somebody would would say you know you know that's not music and, and hank would be like yeah well, i don't want it to be music mm -hmm. it was in in very defiant tone and you know they changed the game yeah yeah and that's kind of the loneliest monk you know kind of had the same kind of idea like he didn't, it's not that he didn't want things to be music his his thing mm -hmm. was he was like i hear music in everything mm -hmm. you know all the sounds of the world are music and so he you know tried to capture the sounds of the world, the discordant sounds of yeah. the world, because to him, that was music. And and it's interesting how, how you know, different people's views of things can totally change the way that people do things for a while. And then, you know, that in turn influences the next generation of musicians and the next and so on until, you know, you get all these brand new forms of doing things. Um, and it's, it's really inspiring. Yeah. Um, so... On that note, I'm going to talk about one one other uh, uh, bit of music, and it ties into all of this. You know, I mentioned that early on, 
Chuck D came to hip hop, but was a huge fan of punk and uh, mm-hmm. rock music. One of the we often associate associate punk with like suburban white kids, yeah, yeah, um, or like British bands like the Sex Pistols or yeah, whatever, yeah, who are then listened to by suburban, suburban white, white kids. kids yes. <laughs> um, but uh, the first, uh, what people consider to be the first hardcore punk band, is a band called Bad Brains, and similarly. They took 70s rock riffs, mm-hmm. you know, like your, your, your hard rock riffs of bands like ACDC and, and Black Sabbath and what mm-hmm. have you, and they played them all twice as fast. Mm-hmm. And so you had this, this, you know, really aggressive buzzsaw sound. Mm-hmm. And the thing that people would be surprised to know is that, uh, unless you're, punks all know, but, uh, but people outside of punk don't realize that, that this band Bad Brains, that basically created hardcore punk mm-hmm. is for black guys from DC, mm-hmm. for black kids from DC, and it's because because they just came in and just turned rock upside down. Mm-hmm. You know, they came in and they they were playing this explosive, high energy music, and all of these all of these punk kids from Washington DC area and the surrounding areas were like, oh my god, yeah, yeah. You know, it's really interesting, too, when you think about it, um, you know, and, and I know that it's a, a frustrating thing to, to a lot of folks in the black community is that how many of our movements, musical movements have come from black culture originally, you know, it's like when you think about rock and roll, yeah. you know, that came from from black culture, from the mix of, you know, like, like the blues and like R&B and things like that. And, you know, it just, it's funny, because like, when you think like, like, my, initially, my reaction when you said Chuck D was into rock and roll, I'm like, Chuck D is into rock and roll, but then I'm like, why wouldn't Chuck D be into rock and roll? Because we think about a lot of those things, eventually they get turned into this media that gets consumed by white kids in the suburbs, but, you know, a lot of it was originally made by black folks for black folks, yeah. um, you know, and, and eventually it became, like jazz, you know, it eventually became a thing that white folks started listening to, but initially it was this thing done by black folks for black folks. Yeah, and one of the things that's... Uh... That, you know, I think people would have a hard time contextualizing now that are coming, coming at, you know, let's say looking at somebody like Public Enemy from listening to hip hop that's from current times. Yeah, yeah, because like trap music sounds completely different than like... Yeah, trap music sounds completely different. But even, you know, listening to, you know, like if you listen to Common or Kanye, uh-huh. um, to think that this band Public Enemy, they, um, on It Takes a Nation and Millions to Hold Us Back, they reference the New York thrash metal band Anthrax and in one of the songs there is a the the backing track is a riff from a song from Slayer. Okay. Um that Yeah, it's just like I remember being really weirded out the first time I heard Run DMC with Aerosmith uh in the, the walk this way. But then it's like, okay, this this works. Yeah, so um since since I'm nerding out, um so so as we said, Def Jam uh was Russell Simmons um, which was one of the members of Run DMC's mm-hmm. brother, um, and um, Rick Rubin. And Rick Rubin was just like a weird, like if you read the Beastie Boys book, a really weird suburban white kid mm-hmm. um, that uh, he, you know, came upon this this hip hop thing right as it was it was happening. And Russell Simmons, you know, latched on to Rick Rubin, and they 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 formed Def Jam Rec- Def Jam Records. One of the things that Rick Rubin brought to the table was he he really like the idea of taking classic rock, mm-hmm. what we would now call classic rock, and including it in hip-hop. And that's why on um, uh, License to Ill, the uh, um, first uh, major, or not major, but the first big Beastie Boys record, has a bunch of classic rock riffs. Mm-hmm. It is that connection that resulted 
in Run DMC, it was Rick Rubin's idea, if I recall correctly, to reach out to Aerosmith and mm-hmm. be like, hey, we want to do this thing. And one of the things that a lot of people don't know, and it was talked about in the Beastie Boy book, and I always thought this as well, Aerosmith was a washed up band. Mm-hmm. By, by, by the time the early 80s hit, you know, their, their, their era of songs like Dream On and, and. Yeah, that was all past. It was all past. And they were, they were a, a, a band hanging on by a thread. And then here comes Run DMC and they end up doing Walk This Way, uh, you know, a cover of Walk This Way with two of the members of Aerosmith. And it caused this one, it made hip hop accessible to folks that originally wouldn't have have listened to it, listened yeah. to hip-hop and at the same time it jump-started aerosmith's career again and made the way for dude likes like a dude looks like a lady <laughs> um so and the you know off of what was it armageddon <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't remember the, but i don't want to close my eyes song i don't uh, want to fall asleep because <laughs> i miss you babe <laughs> yeah. So, so we can thank Run DMC for uh, for for re- re- revitalizing Aerosmith. <laughs> yes. Um. But yeah, it it it's, it was a, a a really big thing, and you know, part of the reason why that Slayer riff is on takes a nation of millions to hold back such a long title, <laughs> um, is because of the fact that Slayer was on Def Jam, and which you think of Def Jam, you think hip-hop label, oh, this is LL Cool J, this is Run DMC, this is Public Enemy, and Slayer. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, so, so uh, you know, that connection allowed that to happen. Uh-huh. There's also, if you want to uh, get a look at books on, uh, like, photography of hip-hop artists and uh, rock musicians from that time, uh, look for a, a photographer named Glennie Friedman. Uh, he was a really prolific photographer in that era, and uh, there is a ton of fantastic photos capturing that era of hip-hop and punk rock. Mm-hmm. And there's even a classic photo of Chuck D and Flavor Flav wearing minor threat shirts. Okay, cool. Yeah, no, the intersections between between punk and, and hip hop, you know, there there seem to be quite a quite a few because it's like also um, I remember reading in the graphic novel the the hip hop family tree about Debbie Harry and how you know it's like her music it was influenced by you know she came from like the punk mu- movement but then like her music was kind of disco influenced in the same time and mm-hmm. so um, but then she had you know a few songs where she kind of rapped the lyrics instead yep. of saying them um, because she was, you know, influenced by what, everything else that was happening in New York City at the time. Yeah, yeah. The, the, that was the thing is that um, both of those things were urban music. Mm-hmm. And so, like, it was it was normal. When I when I listened to the, the punk radio show in Buffalo, New York on WBNY, which was a... Uh, college radio. Yeah, college radio. There was always, you know, every every two-hour block, there w- they would do like a run of of hip-hop tracks Mm -hmm. at least in 1989 so yeah so if you want to learn more about hip-hop or just you know jazz or the influences of hip-hop and how hip-hop came to be check out these books uh at the library we have them all at the shore library um and then we also have the music available either you can like i said if it's not available at our library you can request it and we can get it from another library or a lot of it is available on Hoopla, so you can listen to it on Hoopla. As always, thank you for tuning into the Shores Stacks. We hope you have enjoyed the show. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or Podbean, which has an app that you can put on your phone as well. And uh, yeah, like I said, we won't be here next week, but we will be back the third week of July. So tune in then to find out what we've been listening to, reading, or watching. Until next time, thanks for listening, and be well.
The Shorewood Stacks is produced by Lisa Quintero and Nick Barron for the Shorewood Public Library. Music on this episode is by Kevin McLeod. The song is called Ice Flow and can be found at incompetech.com.